everyone, and welcome back to Practically Zero Waste, a podcast for making zero waste living as practical as possible. I'm your host, Elspeth Callahan, and welcome to today's episode where we are chatting with our dear, dear friend, Teresa Cotton. She's back on the podcast. This episode was recorded back before I had my baby, so this was early July. We were sitting in my garage during a massive thunderstorm, uh, social distance, and it was delightful. So you might hear a little bit of rain, a little bit of thunder in the background. But in this episode, Teresa is reviewing in great detail the book On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal by Naomi Klein, written in 2019. Teresa has fallen in love with this book and does an incredible job sharing in detail what is going on in this book. What is the Green New Deal? What is the current conversation leading up to the proposal of the Green New Deal and gets into all the nitty gritty? It's amazing and it's big. So it's actually a two-part episode. You're going to get the second half in a couple of weeks whenever I finish editing it. Check them both out. You'll get what's the situation in the first half and then in the second half we'll get into some more action items and practical steps for making a difference. Teresa's got a lot to say, so we'll just jump right in, and I hope you enjoy the first part of this review. It's a good one, so let's go. Wow, that's actually, that's actually raining a lot. Yeah. (laughs) It has been raining all day. Hi, Teresa. Hi. How are you? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm dry. We're in the yeah. garage. Social distance in the garage for a podcast studio recording. During a giant thunderstorm. It's ridiculous. It's like <laughs> the most heavy rain that I've seen in a little while. Which is yes. fine because my garden, I went out there maybe two days ago before this kind of on and off rain had started for the past few days. I went out there. My snap peas just had flowers. And this morning, I picked, like, seven full-size snap peas that I... Ooh, yay. So, like, those grew in no time at all with all of the rain and heat that we've had. Yes. Good weather. Well, I wonder how many more you'll get after this. Yeah, I know. It's (laughs) going to be awesome. Snap peas for days. (laughs) (laughs) So, we have recently spoken on the podcast just kind of a bit about Plastic Free July and finding your motivation again. Um, but at the end of that last episode with Teresa, we talked about a book that um, she has felt really, really inspired by lately. And uh, hopefully we're going to hear all about it today. What do you think? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I begged you to let me on <laughs> to talk about this book. She wanted to record outside. And I was like, uh-uh. uh-uh you- it's, it's raining today. Can yeah. you hear that thunder? <laughs> Crazy thunder. I, Remind I, us what the book was called. Oh, and yeah. What, yeah, right. yeah. Tell me all about it. <laughs> so this book is called On Fire, um, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, and it's by Naomi Klein. It came out in 2019. It feels as inspiring and transformational as when I was first introduced to the concept <gasps> of zero waste. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like it feels like the next big chapter for me and hopefully a lot of people too so I thought like yeah maybe maybe I I don't know this might be kind of weird for a podcast episode but I wanted to just do a little like walkthrough of this book and kind of highlight pull out some of the quotes that that really struck me and then also some that that I think would be interesting to the zero waste community and just and you haven't read it so Mm -hmm. so 
I'll kind of go through a bunch of those and you can like, yeah, we can see your thoughts and reactions, you know, to hearing some of this stuff. Yeah, I'm so excited because like a lot of books like this that aren't like 101 ways to go zero waste, they are a little bit daunting. Like the words Green New Deal sound really intimidating to me talking about like the climate crisis beyond just like what's within my little bubble of control where I can be like ah no I'm not going to get that um plastic cutlery with my takeout aren't I saving the planet like yeah stuff like that can be really intimidating and so it's gonna be really good to unpack um such a heavy topic or such a, a larger topic that's kind of the next step for a lot of people Especially mm-hmm. if we're feeling stale, like you're plateauing, like you just don't have any control over things right now. Yes. All of those are valid feelings. I feel them too. And I'm really excited to, yeah, learn a little bit more about what you're talking about while I eat my snack. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly how I've always felt. Like zero waste was like an entry point for me, whereas I didn't see mm-hmm. another entry point. Like, wh- how can I make a difference? And mm-hmm. um, this book is is one of those things that just like it's so comprehensive it's so in-depth and it draws all these connections so some of this information is not necessarily new to to me or going to be new to Mm -hmm. people or listeners but the connections that are drawn I'm like okay Mm -hmm. like this just makes it so clear so it makes at least for me it left me feeling like now I know things and I know what to do Mm -hmm. (laughs) like you know your next step yeah and so it's not one of it's totally the opposite of the all those books and like the end is coming we're doomed you know Mm -hmm. here's all the negative stuff awareness like you know we're I feel like we're also sick of just awareness with no like what can I do? You're just left feeling yeah. hopeless, Where's the practical right? Side of it? How do I take yeah. action? Yeah, and so I think that's why a lot of us were drawn to zero waste. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, this this sort of new idea coming out of climate justice and sort of breaking into the mainstream, I feel like a lot of it's getting attracting a lot of people getting on board who have mm-hmm. been like, there's stuff we can do and we need to do it. And that's yes. terrifying. <laughs> power (laughs) the universe confirms what you were saying yeah (laughs) wow (laughs) i love it can we jump right in like what um okay how do you even start with a book like this okay so let's start with a climate disrupted future what that looks like so i'm gonna read you this quote a climate disrupted future is a bleak and austere future one capable of turning all our material possessions into rubble or ash with terrifying speed, we can pretend that the ex- that extending the status quo into the future unchanged is one of the options available to us. But that is a fantasy. Change is coming one way or another. Our choice is whether we try to shape that change to the maximum benefit of all, or wait passively as the forces of climate disaster, scarcity, and the fear of the other fundamentally reshape us. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> so in this in this quote, you've kind of like laid out that one of our possibilities is just to allow the current status quo of climate destruction, climate injustice to continue. And I love what I loved about this quote was that line that we can pretend that extending the qu- status quo is an option, 
but it's oh. not because I feel like that is the, I don't know about you but when I'm like in the zero waste mindset and everything and and then you go out into the world and you feel like does anybody else not realize this is like our <laughs> impending doom is around the corner yeah. like and it's like you have this feeling that everyone's living in a bubble that mm-hmm. oh we're fine you know I'm just gonna go and do yeah. my thing and your blinders are on yeah, yeah it's really it's not an option whether or not we're aware of it or admitting it okay right? the status quo extending into the future so we really have two options like admitting that and trying to do something about it or just letting the disaster take over so how did we get here to this current state of climate crisis so here is the explanation that she offers Um, our fossil fuel powered economy requires sacrifice zones it always has and you can't have a system built on sacrificial places and sacrificial people unless intellectual theories that justify their sacrifice exist and persist theories about the people who live there being so poor and backward that their lives and culture don't deserve protection whoa Okay, so we're looking at this. That feels like we're talking about, yes, there's sacrificial elements to, to many, many things. But in this case, fossil fuels, we need uh, to sacrifice the environment and sacrifice um, certain people and the areas that they're living in. Um, yeah. And this isn't like, you know, silly sacrifice thing that we're talking about <laughs> from an Indiana Jones movie. We're talking about people's lives are being affected and at risk because of the strain that fossil fuels is putting on the planet. And in order for that to like continue, it, you it, have to look yeah. at people or parts of the planet or groups of people as not being worth saving. Exactly. Yeah. She. So there's so much in all of Whoa. these. But um she to inter- like before this part in the book she talks about how literal terms in the fossil fuel interest industry are sacrifice zones Whoa. this part in this place those will be sacrifice zones so that a term that's actually used and that's how they think of the land there hmm. but there's people around there that are if- relying on that land and that are affected by those sacrifice mm-hmm. zones so she's drawing these other connections that you, you're sacrificing people as well and you're justifying it because mm-hmm. because somehow this has to continue for your sake right and so and the only you're way justifying that to do so. it by you know these intellectual theories of racism and inequality can you paint a picture of what um a sacrifice zone looks like just for like one example because all i can think of with fossil fuels is like big oil fields in a place like Alberta or um, Texas or something like that. And then where are people living in relation to those fields or like areas? Like, do you know stuff like that? Because I I just don't have a a good visual of that because I'm lucky enough to be detached from such an existence. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that this will lead us to the next section naturally. So um, I wanted to pull a bunch of the examples that she talks about in the book Mm -hmm. of the inequality of different races and how they're being impacted the disproportionate impacts it's having on certain right. groups of people right yeah. because we currently sitting here in my garage have no concept of it because we are disproportionately unaffected um right in comparison to a lot of racial minorities exactly. um, that are living closer to sacrificial land areas yes Perfect. Yeah. So I just pulled some of them. I mean, there's so many uh, that we can talk about. I mean, yeah, read the whole book. But (laughs) for example, like invading countries for oil Hmm. is 
something that we all know has gone on for a long time. Wow. So there's many examples of that. Uh, she gives this example um, relating to invading countries or areas for natural resources in relation to Canada. She's Canadian, so mm-hmm. it's nice. A lot of the examples are... That is helpful for my Yeah, own within Canada. It's just a neat perspective. But yeah. um, this is very timely with some of the things that have been going on revelations in the Canadian news lately but um, this quote truth and reconciliation will remain a cruel joke if non-indigenous Canadians do not confront the why behind those cruel human rights abuses the goal was always to remove all barriers to unrestrained resource extraction this is not ancient history across the country indigenous land rights remain the single greatest barrier to planet destabilizing resource extraction from pipelines to clear-cut logging whoa i didn't know that that indigenous land rights are the barrier right now the only thing that's stopping that's the biggest barrier wow i mean i've heard some of this i know that you know that when the keystone pipeline was being planned um that indigenous communities were the the leaders like they were the ones stopping and and protesting in the streets and i just never had it framed like that Mm -hmm. these people are the the greatest barrier and so and barrier but also protector from a different perspective but i love the term barrier because it's showing what she's also saying is how this is why governments are just giving lip service to truth mm. and reconciliation, but then at the same time trying to sneakily... Holy. What rights are they really giving them mm. if they're trying to extract their land and destroy it just to make money, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of like gives this whole context to everything that's being talked about with colonization and the history of that within Canada, the residential schools and that whole history. This is all history, but it's still going on. Yeah. Just part of the reason why the big message of this book is like, we can't just come at environmentalism from the perspective of environmentalism because it's so intertwined with all of these other issues. Yeah. You know, this is why green advocates have only had limited success all Mm -hmm. along it's because if we're not also tackling these inequalities then we're never going to get very far because there's always going to be these dealings going on Mm -hmm. underneath the surface right yeah and that's absolutely the way to I think that the conversation needs to be framed about how beyond the plastic bag more than a plastic Mm -hmm. bag we have to be taking action as it intersects with other fields of study so like the idea that environmental racism Mm -hmm. is is basically underlying everything that we should be working against sorry like trying to trying to the root of so many of our problems yes. are so linked to racism and so exactly. linked to all these other kind of issues that are that should be um, talked about in the context of environmentalism as well. And vice versa. Yes. Yeah. Let's look at some more examples. So being attacked and killed for natural resources. According to Global Witness, more than three people per week were killed worldwide in 2015 defending their land forests and rivers against destructive industries and about 40 percent of the victims they estimate are indigenous 
Totally. We could probably go for years talking about all of the horrific examples of mm-hmm. how specifically indigenous and also mm-hmm. minorities in general have been targeted um, as an opportunity for larger companies and racist companies to um, just kind of plow over them and treat them as disposable, sacrificial. Mm-hmm. It's all in the name of making money. Profit. Profit. Yeah. And so we could we could go into like years worth of details about all those things. Yeah. So pick the ones that are really striking and then we'll be able to not get too bogged down by the doom and gloom and be able yeah. to like yeah. you know move on to the actionable side of things, right? So For like sure. what we can do. Poisoning of land and resources. So lots of examples of this, but urban neighborhoods next door to power plants and refineries mm. in North America are overwhelmingly communities of color, black and Latino with markedly higher rates of respiratory illnesses and cancers. Mm. So connected to colonialism and impacts from that, increasing their vulnerability during climate disasters. Mm -hmm. So like in Puerto Rico, during Hurricane Maria, the vast majority died um, because when you, this is a quote from the book, when you systematically starve and neglect the very bones of a society, rendering it dysfunctional on a good day, that society has absolutely no capacity to weather a true crisis. So basically she argues that many of the people who died in Hurricane Maria didn't need to, but Mm -hmm. it was because they had such poor, poor infrastructure. Their society has been just so on the brink of, Mm -hmm. yeah, for so long since colonization. And, Mm -hmm. And then there's some interesting connections between migration and climate change. So she talks about a lot of examples of displacement due to unlivable conditions because of increasing climate disasters. And so a 2018 study estimates that by 2050, more than 140 million people in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and Latin America will be displaced because of climate stresses. That all of these stresses as well, climate stresses and displacement, is also a big uh, factor in wars breaking out mm-hmm. and and other types of unlivable conditions developing in these areas of the world. And so this is getting like kind of heady and complex, but to connect that to the fact that she talks about how people who were sort of one-time climate change deniers, mm-hmm. um, as that becomes <laughs> less and less, easy to deny Mm -hmm. um that now what a lot of them are doing is so she says it gives them all the more reason for wealthy majority white countries to fortress their borders as well as their identities as white christians and wage war on any and all invaders Mm -hmm. so i just thought it was so interesting because you do see these trends of like fortressing the borders and protecting from invaders but it's all connected to climate change but we never hear that yeah we just see them as enemies and coming to steal our land and our resources and it's like we stole theirs yeah or theirs were taken from them reframing things like syrian refugees or people um Mexican immigrants in the states like all of those kinds of ongoing things the idea that there's a good and a bad guy in in that situation um, mm-hmm. has just been like absolutely a 
prolific narrative um, yes. for forever. Um, yeah. Based, like, being told from the perspective of the predominantly white, um, wealthier country saying, those people, or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. are coming into my home, mm-hmm. my land. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and to be able to reframe those um, conversations and, like, sad, sad stories. hmm in the context of environmentalism and realizing mm-hmm. that that's likely at the root of all of these yes. things yes, is so, so important and broadens our conversation in the environmental realm, like, hugely. And recognizing that that narrative that you talked about that's always kind of been there, there is a huge resurgence of that happening mm-hmm. now. It's connected to, like oh, wait, climate change is real? Okay, well, how can we protect ourselves? Mm -hmm. And that's the first thing, right? Well, this is our space. Like, Mm -hmm. no one better come and take what we have. Let's protect our own kind of thing. Yeah, so those are some of the examples that really kind of brought it home for me. And then um, she talks about this concept of green colonialism, which I thought was really interesting. So she says the Jewish National Fund calls itself a green NGO and and not just them by the way she says there's tons of them but this is like a a big one that's known for this they call themselves a green NGO and boasts having planted 250 million trees in Israel but many of them are non-native to the region and have been planted over native orchards and over Palestinian Palestinian villages and the Jewish National Fund refuses to lease or sell land to non-Jews and has also directly funded key infrastructures for the Israeli military. Okay. So just that, you know, when there's so much complexities going on below mm-hmm. the surface that mm-hmm. there's, you know, you hear the term greenwashing and stuff, but you never necessarily know that there's some really insidious stuff happening underneath yeah. the surface let alone like people think they're supporting something green and it's really not mm-hmm. but there's a lot of there that that's been manipulated by certain groups and used for conflict and used for these ulterior motives that are that no one would want to support if they really knew that's so complicated it's like, so how are complicated you supposed to know yeah exactly you don't and this is why this is why i just thought it was so interesting that mm-hmm. there there's so many things like that in this book that are just so illuminating okay so another example of that is in america's in the americas a forest is suddenly rebranded a carbon offset and has put off limits to its traditional inhabitants as a result, the carbon offset market has created a whole new class of green human rights abuses, <gasps> with farmers and indigenous people being physically attacked by park rangers or private security when they try to access these lands. Oh my gosh, so because a different group has come in and planted all of these trees or declared that this area shall be preserved in order to, you know, great, protect the forest um, and, you know, allow for the trees to draw down the carbon and do all the offsetting so that we can like you know go for an airplane ride or something like that like it's exactly it's what you hear of carbon offsetting i know i was like crushed reading this and i'm like oh this thing that i thought was good and that you know probably all these things are using that i that i do like I don't know if EcoCard or or if they do stuff like that or if it's more just um, related to the companies and and their 
their practices, but but there's a lot. There's carbon offsetting has become a market. That's what this is saying. Right. And so it's so not because saying it's that, now a market. Yeah. It's become this big thing, and you don't realize the land and who it belongs to that's being used for this purpose. This new market. Yeah. Right? It's really depressing. I know. What a broad concept just to like say things like carbon offset or even like an episode that we did a long time ago um about like what is the internet where is that stored um like how much electricity does it take to run the internet i have no idea where the internet is like what do you mean where is the internet it's in the sky no it's not like it's a physical place it takes up land it takes up electricity and resources um and it's housed in locations and therefore it is a drain on the planet in a way and so you know are there people being displaced from those lands in order to like house these compounds where all of the servers are for the internet i don't know <laughs> but like you you, you just throw words around yeah you exactly don't know. yeah yeah and it's 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 tough yeah. and and yeah like you said like well you said preserving these forests or whatever for carbon offsetting but i don't think it's even preserving i think it's just constantly planting new right like yeah. that's what carbon offsetting is is that oh, we've, we've created new trees to soak up more carbon because right. keeping the same amount wouldn't work for that theory right right yeah so with with continually planting new again is is that even a good practice mm-hmm. like like we heard about in the the jewish national fund they're ripping out native trees and putting in non-native right or you, you know to go along with that maybe they're planting non-native trees and those are becoming invasive species which are um like taking yes. away the opportunity for the native trees exactly. to grow and do well yeah just interesting things to to know about heartbreaking right? things thanks Teresa. sorry i preferred <laughs> I ignorance know. So that, okay that's that's the depressing <laughs> stuff okay 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 and i just it is depressing to hear it all condensed in oh, one go. Oh, we need to hear it, though. We need to hear it. It's so, it's, this is the thing. It's the information that isn't out there mm-hmm. publicly. It's not in the media. It's not accessible to the masses necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. And so these are the conversations that we need to start having and bringing to light so that, yeah, so that we can all be more conscious around these green solutions and these realities behind the fossil fuel industry that Mm -hmm. we need better solutions and we need to be maybe more stirred to take stronger action yes um, because we are very easily able to put the blinders back on and and hide in our little holes and and try and forget about all this because it's very depressing and doesn't feel like it's very actionable and attackable we can't really do much Okay, so... Tell um, us all the answers. Well, (laughs) (laughs) Um, so she... One of the things that I love that she does is she debunks some of the myths. Like, for example, she talks about this false notion that it's our human nature is why we're in this crisis, that we're Mm. selfish and that we are incapable of making any sacrifices of luxury or convenience. Mm -hmm. Like that this is like a perpetual myth that's out there, right? Oh, yeah. And so... And definitely pushed by media and marketing. Pushed by Um, media and people... I feel like it's always the response that you get when you talk about these things in like out there in real life, right? mm -hmm. Like outside of these little communities. That's like something along those lines is the kind of response that you get from people. And it's, it's not their fault. Like we have been 
perpetually brainwashed to think that way. Yeah. So she argues, we have not done the things that are necessary to lower emissions because the actions that would give us the best chance of averting catastrophe and that would benefit the vast majority are extremely threatening to an elite minority that has a stranglehold over our economy, our political process, and most of our major media outlets. And so this is all this, like the fossil fuel industry, the people who are making skillions off of the fossil fuel industry. Like it's not even the people working in, like the workers, like they, the workers themselves have been exposed to toxicity and, Mm -hmm. and then have been left jobless after the Mm -hmm. project's done and, like it's not them either and they have a right to want to work right Mm -hmm. it's the elite minority is owners and shareholders in the fossil fuel industry who are making tons of money and who have dealings with politicians like politicians in our part of the world other parts of the world too they accept money from the fossil fuel industry Mm -hmm. and that's why they make deals like like our liberal federal government in Canada was planning this pipeline and mm-hmm. furthering that action. Like that's our liberal government and they're being funded by, by fossil fuels. And then banks have a part in all of this as well. Yeah. Like it's, it's all so, again, interconnected on that level that this is why it's been such a challenge. And until we see those complexities and name them and do something to counter that that's why we've been we've had a hard time to make any change like real change happen right brutal so but I just love that she makes that so clear like if I know it's not very clear in the the way that I'm describing it I don't know it's coming across when you read this book and you hear all of the explanations it becomes crystal clear and you're it's it's like that thing when you when you read something or someone says something and you're like thank you you like I never believed that it that we were not you know that it's our own selfishness is why Mm -hmm. we can't change and Mm -hmm. I never believed that myth but I never had the words and the explanation to like counter that when Mm -hmm. people say that and 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 she does so it's it's that feeling of like relief that you finally have someone who's able to voice that articulately. That's great. And, yeah. and validate the the feeling that you felt for so long that yes. this can't be the answer. This can't be exactly. all that there is. Totally. So let's talk a little bit about the Paris Agreement, just to give us some context. So she says, this is an emergency, a present emergency, not a future one, but we aren't acting like it. The Paris Agreement commits to keeping warming below two degrees Celsius. It's a target that is beyond reckless. When it was unveiled in Copenhagen in 2009, many African delegates called it a death sentence. The slogan of several low-lying island nations is 1.5 to stay alive. Mm. At the last minute, a clause was added to the Paris Agreement that says countries will pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And then she says, not only is this non-binding, but it is a lie because we are making no such efforts. The governments that made this promise are now pushing for more fracking and more mining of the highest carbon fossil fuels on the planet. Wow. So again, just like illuminating that whole thing that there's been a lot of lip service and yes, I'll sign this. Great. Put it in the news. 
but does it translate into anything at the end of the day if fossil fuels industries are funding governments Mm. no i appreciate too just enlightening like for those who haven't sat down and read um in detail about what the paris agreement is we'll get into the green new deal as well but those those kinds of phrases and you know oh and trump trump didn't he retracted his yeah uh, agreement to the paris agreement you're just kind of like i've heard that but i don't know what that means and i don't know like yeah the idea that like <laughs> so weird to to have those things explained when we just yeah, hear them all the time. It gives some nice context to all of these things that you have maybe heard of, heard bits of, mm-hmm. but didn't like understand. And it's not like everything like in depth, but it's it's a very approachable like general written for the lay person to understand. Good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so further on that. She talks about breakthrough research from Oil Change International in Washington, D.C. shows that if we burn the gas and oil currently in production, so all of the gas and oil that's just in production right now, we would very likely surpass the two degrees of warming and would certainly pass the 1.5 degrees. So that is not even looking at the projects for the future that are being planned that are already like being extracted now like when did this book um 2019 yikes yeah so this is why my zero waste brain was like ah this needs to be the priority right now like we can't even burn all the stuff that they're they that that's are they're already processing without going over Yeah. yeah Yeah. Yeah. And then you look at the tragedy again that is here in Canada, a wealthy, predominantly white country. We, in our little garage here, will probably be (laughs) some of the last to feel the effects of climate change versus people like you were describing that like the African delegates for the Paris Agreement were saying, this is a death sentence because yes. where we are, yes. we will feel the effects of climate change far sooner than where you and I are right now. And already are. And already, already are. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and not just there, all over yeah. the world. Yeah. And, and we're already seeing weird stuff here, yeah. but it's not life threatening in the way that it is to many mm-hmm. nations at this time mm-hmm. yeah yeah so then <laughs> i don't know how to wrap some of this up but yeah we'll change um over to geoengineering which is, is just is- another area that again i've heard bits and pieces of but when i read about this i was like oh my i just need to talk about this because it's something we all need to be aware of so geoengineering um in the to- context still of um green washed things so talking about green colonialism now geoengineering uh, geoengineering kind of means deliberately interfering with the earth's climate systems to try to reduce or reverse global warming so like trying to like tinker with the earth's thermostat is something (laughs) that they call it yeah it sounds just ridiculous right dumb Oh, wait till you hear this. Okay, here are the biggest examples of geoengineering that are being researched right now. Fertilizing the ocean with iron to create large algae blooms that would sequester carbon 
and thereby combat climate change. Okay. So dumping a bunch of iron into the ocean, mm-hmm. not going to have any adverse effects. Yeah. No, it's just going to solve our climate any- crisis, yeah. right? Yeah. Pumping sulfate aerosols into the upper atmosphere to imitate the cooling effects of a major volcanic eruption. Oh. Doesn't that sound like a great solution? Yeah. And then brightening clouds <laughs> so that they reflect more of the sun's rays back into space. That sounds terrifying. It sounds terrifying to me, too. This is why I, I, I mean, I was terrified reading this and I feel bad. <laughs> bringing out all these terrifying <laughs> things but at the same time I'm like oh my god I remember reading about something like this and it was a few years ago and I, I think I just have been blocked like mentally blocking a lot because of things because it's dumb you're just like it's what? dumb but we have to all be aware that there are people funneling millions into this right. research right now right now yeah and some people have already like she talks about this example of this guy who went out and already dumped a bunch of iron off the coast into the ocean yeah and like people are just going Stop ahead him. and doing things we need to know and we need to like take action to put the brakes on this kind of stuff yeah um yeah apparently bill gates has funneled millions into this research and he's invested in a company that's developing a strato shield which is a 19 mile long hose suspended by helium balloons that would spew sun-blocking sulfur dioxide particles into the sky and also a tool that can supposedly blunt the force of hurricanes. Oh, gosh. And, and it's al- already really hard to accept, like, the climate crisis that we have created just by trying to do other things, right, yeah. in the world. Yeah. But when people are trying to solve the crisis by purposely going out there and, like, disrupting these... systems of the earth like come on (laughs) but again we just put all of that money into fixing our current problems of overconsumption and over extraction yeah basically that is her argument that the risks are huge and ocean fertilizations with iron could trigger dead zones and toxic tides multiple simulations have predicted that mimicking the effects of A volcano would interfere with monsoons in Asia and Africa, potentially threatening water and food security for billions of people. And like, what is the material that is being pumped into the atmosphere that wouldn't then create some sort of like a toxic byproduct in the rain or like what? I don't want to breathe that in. Exactly. Yeah. The way that what you're putting out there is natural. Carbon capturing was just probably the most like seen as the most safe and like mainstream form, which is capturing the carbon before it's released when burning fossil fuels and burying it deep in the ground. But again, like a lot of her argument too is that like the fossil fuel industry is like promoting these as the answer. The answer so that they can continue. Yeah. Right? So be like really wary of these proposed solutions that they're saying can just allow us to continue the way that things are. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about climate justice and what that can look like. Yeah. So um, we must respond to the global ecological crisis in ways that are far more inclusive and that don't 
ask people to shelve their concerns about war, poverty, and systemic racism and first save the world, mm -hmm. but that instead demonstrate how all these crises are interconnected and how the solutions could be too. So a Green New Deal is a politically viable transformational project that recognizes the urgency of our interlocking crises, including the climate emergency, the COVID-19 pandemic, mm -hmm. ongoing colonization, economic inequality, racism, unjust treatment of migrants, and other ways that our society makes people vulnerable, and the scale of change necessary to tackle them. It is more oh. than a policy. It is an idea for massive societal transformation that has sparked movements around the world. And how long is the, has this been a concept? The Green New Deal? Yeah. Um, so... That's a good question. It, not for very long. Mm -hmm. First heard about it maybe two years ago. Yeah. And I think the iteration of it before that was so the, the leap. I don't know if you've heard of mm -hmm. that, but Naomi Klein was involved in that. And it was a bunch of leaders from a like a bunch of different areas, right? Like she's social justice and environmentalism. And there were economists. There were people representing indigenous people like okay. all these leaders came together to sort of build like a solution a, vi a politically viable solution okay. that was realistic and so they came up with this plan and the first iteration of it was called the leap and then from there i think it sort of developed further into this green new deal and kind of came onto the political scene a little bit in the last election in, in mm -hmm. the states so it, it's You've maybe heard about it since then in the last couple of years. And I had too. And I actually remember, I, I did come across the leap like when it first came out, but I didn't have like this in-depth of a picture of what it was. Mm -hmm. And so my first response was like, oh, it's so many things. Like, I don't know if this is realistic. Like, mm -hmm. and, and kind of like just daunting, like environmentalism is daunting to begin with. But now we have to involve all these other things. Like, I don't know the first clue on how to begin, mm -hmm. right? So that that was kind of my first response. And I think a lot of people's first response. But since then, there's been a lot of work that's been done. And mm -hmm. so anyways, let me paint the picture. Cool. So the Green New Deal, the idea is a simple one. In the process of transforming the infrastructure of our societies at the speed and scale that scientists have called for, Humanity has a once-in-a-century chance to fix an economic model that is failing the majority of people on multiple fronts. Mm. Because the factors that are destroying our planet are also destroying people's quality of life in many other ways, from wage stagnation to gaping inequalities to crumbling services to the breakdown of any um, semblance of social cohesion. Challenging these underlying forces is an opportunity to solve several interlocking crises at once. In tackling the climate crisis, we can create hundreds of millions of good jobs around the world, invest in the most systemically excluded communities and nations, guarantee health care and child care, and much more. The result of these transformations would be economies built both to protect and to regenerate the planet's um, life support systems and to respect and sustain the people who depend on them. 
That's a good line at the end there. I'm thinking of um, Sustain Eco Stores. One of their core values is people and planet. And yes. often the people side of things gets like deliberately neglected or like forgotten in the conversation about environmentalism. And yes. You know, we're here to save the planet. No, we're saving the people. And like, you know, how to take care of the people should be a reflection of how we should also take care of the planet. Absolutely. Yeah. And that we can do both. And that in hearing about it, it's almost like they go hand in hand Mm -hmm. instead of it being overwhelming because it's too many things to tackle at once. It's actually this, it could be the solution to a whole bunch of things at once. Mm -hmm. So basically like really boiled down, it's the concept that like in uh, divesting from fossil fuels and turning to green powered societies and economies, that's a huge job. Well, there's also tons of people who need really good jobs. Mm-hmm. So taking those communities that have been underprivileged and giving them the jobs and giving them leadership roles in developing th- this change within their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and also she talks about prioritizing the communities first that have been on the brunt of the climate change yeah, um, impacts. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only fair way to do it. Yeah. So in those terms, it doesn't seem like that big or that daunting or unachievable. It's, it's really only the barriers of the current economic system that's at play. Mm-hmm. Right. And that elite minority that's advocating real hard to keep using fossil fuels because mm-hmm. they're profiting so much. That combined with, with the lack of, awareness yes maybe that too yes absolutely yeah this plan like when all these people got together to develop this this leap manifesto and then this iteration of it the green new deal like they're saying that this is something that we can now say yes to and advocate for instead of just saying like no more fossil fuels no more plastic like trying to like Mm -hmm. yeah just um, be like fight against things yeah we insist on this yeah right and so put you know there's a lot of action it allows us to take a role and take action and Mm -hmm. be empowered so that's the part that i find really inspiring yeah i think that's important to uh, we always talk about this on the podcast um instead of like taking away something you are adding something to your life to the point where like if you're eating like if you're getting all of your protein or whatever from plant sources then you're not feeling deprived or hungry from like having a lack of meat that just to like contextualize it in something that we've talked about a lot um if you're really really rallying um and saying i want um sustainable renewable resources and energy Mm -hmm. sources versus fossil fuels if i Mm -hmm. want if i just ask for more of that or start Mm -hmm. to within my capacity include different ways to engage with renewable resources instead of being like down with gas yeah i can't drive my car even though i still have to get to work you know if you're able to start to Oh, like I just I, I'm one I'm still on the brink of like okay how do we as little individuals with our practical yes, like ways yes. what do we do to to start engaging in this conversation in an active way exactly Help me. okay we'll get there we'll get there <laughs>
Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you want to hear more from Naomi Klein herself about her book, On Fire, you can go to naomiklein.org forward slash on hyphen fire forward slash and read all about it there. You can order her book. You can find it at your local library. You can borrow it from a friend. You should do that first, which is how I'm reading it because I'm borrowing it from Teresa and I've got all of her highlighted sections in here. So it's actually really sweet. If you're wanting to hear more from Teresa, you can always find her on Instagram at Teresa Godden Art. Of course, if you want more episodes like this with Teresa or about uh, the Green New Deal, I will link them in the show notes below. You can find those in the archives wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to support the show, you can always go to coffee.com slash Elspeth Callahan. That's K-O hyphen F-I.com forward slash Elspeth Callahan and buy me a coffee. It's a one-time contribution to the show. It helps keep the batteries charging and the content coming. That's all from me this week. I hope you have a great week, everyone, learning all that you can about the Green New Deal and what we can do to make a difference. Part two will be coming up eventually. I hope you're having a great time out in the snow, or if you're lucky enough to be in the Southern Hemisphere right now, then in the sunshine. Have a great week, everyone, and talk to you soon.